Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank research center and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, go to indogerman.center. And you can also find this link in the show notes. Today, we have another wonderful episode, another wonderful guest here with me who will talk about corporate strategies for emerging markets. His name is Talal Rafi, and he is a management consultant and an economist. He works as a senior global management consultant at Deloitte, where he is a member of the Deloitte Global Economist Network. He is an expert member of the World Economic Forum and was a member of the Global ESG Operations Team at Deloitte. He co-chairs the Global Plastic Innovation Action Network at the World Economic Forum. And he's also a regular columnist for the International Monetary Fund, where he writes on public financial management topics. He has given talks globally including at places such as Nasdaq Center, Standard & Poor Global and the Central Bank of Sri Lanka. He contributes regularly with thought leadership for the Davos Agenda online, and his work has been published by the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, Asian Development Bank, the World Economic Forum, as mentioned before, UNCCC, and the London School of Economics and Forbes. So that's a long list, and I suppose there are more that haven't been mentioned. Welcome, Talal, and welcome to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matthias. And it's an absolute honor to be on your podcast. You're more than welcome, of course, and given your profile, which is very broad, and also your interest, the range of publications, this will be a relatively broad episode, I suppose. We will cover many topics, but the overarching theme is emerging markets and corporate strategies. And as always in this podcast, we are at the nexus between business and international relations, geopolitics, and we're trying to explore this field from the perspective of a business or a business leader trying to identify both opportunities but also threats, things to look out for when it comes to the global political landscape. And I would like to start with the two big behemoths in, in Asia, China and India. I just came back from uh, Delhi where I attended the Resina Dialogue, the, the conference in, in Delhi, And although there were hardly any Chinese present there at all, if any, certainly I didn't meet anyone, I think, China was kind of the, like the elephant in the room. Implicitly or explicitly, China was always part of the discussion. And uh, here in the, in the West, uh, in Europe, where we are based, there's a lot of talk going on about decoupling, diversification, moving away from China, trying not to repeat the mistake that now many people think the West did, or at least many European countries vis-a-vis -vis Russia, is becoming too dependent on one 
country, one authoritarian country for that matter. What's your take? Is India the replacement of China? Can it complement it? What's going on there? Right. That's a, that's a good question. I mean, uh, the world has become so dependent on uh, China over the last few decades. I mean, about 30% of uh, global output comes from China. So they have a very large part playing in the global supply chains. So at the same time, that also means a lot of control. Like, for example, we look at, uh, just to go into details, like the US dollar is dominant around the world, and so is the euro. But then there are democratic principles, frameworks around controlling it. But what would a very powerful China entail? I mean, how are we going to, I mean, we've already seen that certain tech companies have been restricted. There are other restrictions coming in. So there is also the sort of accountability at stake there. But coming on to the question, I, I feel that there is a, a lot of dependence on China, just like how the world still depends a lot on oil for, from Russia and Saudi Arabia. So that gives them sort of control. And that, I feel, is something that uh, the world needs to diversify away from. I mean, it's not just that maybe China is an authoritarian uh, country, but also, even if it wasn't, it's always good to diversify your supply chains. And um, I feel that, you know, the second part of your question was uh, about India, what it has to offer. So I was in Delhi in January, and what I saw was... Uh, a lot of growth, a lot of activities happening around it. It's a changed India. And I had the opportunity to be hosted for lunch by India's former chairman of the India Planning Commission, Dr. Montek Singh Aluwalia. So over lunch, um, of course, I had a three-hour conversation with him. So he was going through most of the history. So India has really transformed. So it was most, I, I feel like uh, all economies, in my sense, when they're allowed to be free, they grow. So the only breaks that come in are regulations like import substitution policies, restricting trade. So the Indian, the license raj was a major obstacle for India to grow. So now that's gone, I feel like India is going to expand very heavily. But there are also certain things that, uh, you know, not sure whether India can replace China as fast as possible. Because one thing, the, a major difference which I feel is that China is more oriented into manufacturing so they're also the type of work they do is also very much into manufacturing while india it's uh, trying to come up as a manufacturing hub i mean apple is also moving some parts of its uh, broader supply chain into the southern part of india but it's uh, the indian economy is more towards services so it's more like outsourced services while china is doing outsourced manufacturing so there it's a difference but over time i feel like uh, there's a huge opportunity coming in india especially now that the momentum has come in. So we saw like uh, China over four decades, they had double digit growths constantly for long periods of time. So that was because uh, there, people saw that there was a huge momentum going. And once you see an economy going double digit, so even investors who are a bit pessimistic tend to jump onto the, the bandwagon. So, so that is something that I feel is going to happen to India because This uh, US-China decoupling, that's going to be something that's going to affect investors very much because why would any major company like, for example, from Europe or Japan or even the Middle East, why would they want to risk uh, starting off operations in China when they know that, you know, relations are not that cool with the United States, which is also a major consumption market. So India, the advantage, as I always say, is that 
it, it has the biggest advantage for India is that it has very good relations with almost all the countries like India, the US, Europe, not in a good way, but even Russia, except China. So ideally situated to replace China. So with also good relations with Japan, Australia. So these are, but also over the long term, I feel like China would be losing the competitive edge because their population is aging. Not just the percentage of older people expanding, but also for the first time we saw that China's general population is coming down. While India is almost up and and it's a much younger population and democracy, more service oriented. These are things that are not easily replaceable. So that's just my initial thoughts. Yeah, very interesting. And you are uh, absolutely right that uh, India is trying to strengthen its manufacturing hub. You mentioned Apple. I think with Foxconn, they're moving into the Chennai area in Tamil Nadu, southern India. Green hydrogen is also a very big topic in, in India. And it's, it's certainly true that uh, you noticed that uh, probably as well. I, I saw it uh, also when I was there is that the country's political and business elite is really brimming with uh, with confidence about the uh, new role as the now or soon to be largest country in the world. I'm not exactly sure when they're supposed to overtake China, but it's imminent. It will happen in the next few months, I, I understand. So that is, is clearly true. At the same time, it's also obviously a matter of size and, and uh, diver gradual diversification. I found it interesting that you uh, mentioned uh, the, the geopolitical situation. As we said, diversification is always good. And what I find interesting or my question to you would be, I think this is obvious on the, on the national level if you're looking at the entire economy. But if you look at it from the perspective of an individual company, imagining you're the CEO of e even a larger multinational corporation, would you say, does it also make sense from the individual company's perspective to diversify? Or is it more something that is true in aggregate, but not so much true on the level of an individual company? So even uh, based on an individual basis as a company CEO of a large firm, I think it always makes sense to sort of diversify in some way, like how Apple is doing initially by diversifying parts of its supply chain away from China and more into India. Because one thing is that nowadays the sanction wars have started as the Russian war showed. So the thing is that what the Ukraine-Russia war saw was that the US, you know, used the dollar as something to curtail Russia which has its justifications at the same time. But this also results in countries such as Russia, China retaliating. So any uh, sort of blockade put into some of these companies can badly affect them. So it's always good to sort of diversify into other nations. And also, even if it's a US company, I don't know how wise it would be to fully depend on China. Because considering that, for example, except for Russia, China does not have good relationships with most of its neighbors, starting from Japan. In India, there's border disputes. And then you have uh, the Philippines, Vietnam, territorial disputes, and also even with Taiwan. And, uh, you know, semiconductor is an important commodity to the world. So it would always make sense that, you know, as a company CEO, you have to strategize over the next 10 years. And if you're not sure how good the relationships with the Chinese regime is going to be with the rest of the world, it's always something to be uh, worried about. So not just fully moving out. I mean, I know that uh, China is a very, very important market. So that's a very lucrative market, could possibly overtake the US by GDP. 
in the possible years so there are arguments that it won't but there is a poss- strong possibility but at the same time so it's a lucrative market but it's always wiser to move away as well because uh, you know with uh, things changing you know now with the new generation gen z the millennials there is more towards a liking for democracy around the world so that might be another factor that like sustainability comes more important in the coming years just my personal opinion You mentioned democracy and I find that interesting because a lot of people here also use that argument when they talk about India or the benefits of India vis-a-vis for example China is that they say well you know it's much easier to do trade with India because it's they're like us they are a democracy they share our values and I'm sometimes a bit skeptical whether this is the right approach because this moral based thinking also opens up quite a big potential for disappointments so let's put it that way you know and we've seen it with the gulf for example where we've, there's a similar situation that on the one hand uh, you know developed countries are very much dependent on uh, gulf states for you know gas and oil at the same time you know there is unease about the you know the political structure and the the political landscape there do you think that makes really sense or should it be more like uh, an interest based approach uh, towards trade as you said diversification for the sake of diversification but not necessarily so much diversification with countries that we like right so here again i think that more than the moral thing i th- i think it would also be a safe option because us still you know attracts the most amount of uh, money coming in their treasury markets are so huge but that is because the people trust the democratic principles so those kind of standards have to be there so in that argument it also makes economic sense to move in that direction but at the same time i feel like it's also there are other arguments as well like this is not against democracy but when i speak to a number of experts they find that you know in india india may not grow as quickly as china did in the 80s and 90s because democracy is a factor because they cannot push through infrastructure roads there will be protests there will be court orders like how we are experiencing in sri lanka so major projects are always put into a hurdle somebody goes to the supreme court files a case so so these are certain things so this is why some many companies try to invest in nations where there is less democracy because all you have to do is just make a deal with the the government or an important figure there and all the process is done very quickly so there are ups and downs but overall i feel like you know democracy should be a factor not just for the moral thing but also it's the economic thing and the safe option yes traditionally business was always or a lot of business people were inclined to to dealing with authoritarian regimes because it was fast but of course that can also that pendulum can also swing into the other direction you you don't, you don't have the predictability you don't have rule of law and uh, in fact i think we've also seen that with china when it comes to the covid policies so, you know that were very harsh for a long time then swung violently into the other direction and uh, i think predictability is also important for business even if it sometimes means sacrificing a bit of speed on the way
you mentioned Sri Lanka, and I, I find this interesting. Uh, one, because I know that you're an expert uh, on Sri Lankan uh, politics and policies, so I want to talk about this a little bit more with you, but also not just to talk about Sri Lanka per se, but also to open up the uh, the picture a little bit, because so far we've been talking about India and China, and this is what always or most of the time happens actually when we're talking about developing and emerging markets. But of course, there are more countries than India and China, even though they are the two largest ones. So maybe let's begin with, with Sri Lanka, a country I think that has uh, had quite a bit of difficulties throughout its history politically, but also economically, is now going through a, a very difficult period. Maybe to the listeners, most of whom I assume will not be deeply familiar with uh, Sri Lankan uh, politics, could you give us a brief overview what's going on there right now? Right. So uh, I just touch on uh, what's going on and maybe also a few things on uh, how we got here over the long term. So it can be a lesson for many. So right now, uh, Sri Lanka defaulted last year and uh, now it's uh, almost ready to start on an IMF program. So some of the conditions are a bit uh, daunting because there's a long way for Sri Lanka to go because uh, one thing is we have one of the lowest government revenue to GDP ratios in the world at 8%. So the IMF wants it at 15%. So that's going to be a drastic almost doubling of uh, tax revenues. So currently right now, back when you compare it to July last year, there was a, we went for three weeks with uh, no fuel. There were food shortages and the country almost came to a standstill with uh, 12 hour power cuts. So right now, most of the issues are gone. There is no more queues. And there is a bit of a limit, like 20 liters of petrol. But things are slowly getting back to normal. Once the IMF is done, I think we'll be getting a few billion, a couple of billion dollars from the ADB and the World Bank. So hopefully things are, I mean, not as good as the neighboring countries, but much better when compared to last year. So if I briefly, if I touch on how Sri Lanka got into this crisis, so it can be a lesson for others. One is uh, to start off. In 1948, Sri Lanka had the second best economy in Asia after Japan. It was considered uh, the Switzerland of Asia. So it was when the British left, they left a very good country with very low debt. Everything was going good. So one might argue that it was uh, the Sri Lankan politicians getting in who started all the issues. So there are a number of reasons. Like one is uh, the first major reasons is that political parties in Sri Lanka came to power using populist promises. Like, for example, free rice was promised, which brought a party to power. And then there was uh, another government which promised bread at very low rates. Another political party came in promising a 10,000 rupee in increase for government servants. And then free fertilizer was promised by another leader. And then la the one before the last, I mean, the previous leader came to power promising a massive tax cut, which got Sri Lanka into the crisis. So... So populist policies has been one thing because politicians have come to power promising things from the state and people have grown accustomed to that. So that is the first thing. The second thing is, as I mentioned before, very low taxation, tax revenue. So 8%, like if you look at Germany or Scandinavian countries, it's all over 40%. So we have the tax rates of Singapore, but the welfare system of a Scandinavian country, which is not sustainable. Here again, if you look at uh, income tax files, for a country of 20 million, broader opened a, a, only around 300,000. And uh, a very small percentage of them actually are active. 
So, so this is the biggest issue. Only 2% of GDP as government revenue comes from uh, di- direct taxes, with 75% of revenue coming from indirect taxes. So bloated public service is a third reason. In 2021, 86% of government revenue went to paying salaries and pensions of government servants, so which is unsustainable. So, And also 1.5 million people work for the government in a country which only has 22 million people, which is extremely large and unsustainable. So these are long-term issues. Other is, uh, I think from in South Asia, Sri Lanka was the first to liberalize. In 1977, we liberalized. And even right now, even with all this distress, we have a higher GDP per capita than India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nepal, Bhutan. So we are still next to Maldives. We are the second best when it comes to GDP per capita. But from uh, 2005, we shifted towards import substitution. So it meant like Sri Lanka is also became the most protected economy in the world. So there are so much of barriers, high tariffs. We want to protect our local industries, which resulted in local industries becoming uncompetitive. So it also reduced the export to GDP ratio from 40% to 20%. And at the same time, we started borrowing heavily. So this got us into the debt crisis because we didn't have uh, forex enough to pay off. Other reasons are lack of entrepreneurship. We have uh, only 1% formal entrepreneurs, 3% if you take informal. Like Vietnam, Thailand, it's over 20%. People are accustomed to you know not looking at entrepreneurship as an alternative. And inconsistent policies, so every time a government comes, tax rates are changed, customs laws changed, so even ministries are changed a bit. So these are issues. And lastly, ease of doing business. So we rank 99th in the world when it comes to ease of doing business and 162nd when it comes to business law enforcement. So these are just, I mean, there's a, I can speak for an hour, but uh, we very brief. <laughs> Okay, yeah, this is interesting and it sounds vaguely familiar. A region that I know quite well is Latin America, which I think has had a lot of similar experiences in the 70s, sometimes also in the 80s with import substitution, industrialization and similar experiments that, as you said, led to protectionist regimes that were highly uncompetitive or industries, local industries that were highly incompetitive and extremely high prices, of course, for all sorts of products from IT to to whatnot. Populism is also an experience that many countries made. And then, of course, the the extremely low percentage of state revenue that, I guess, you know, in consequence leaves a, a largely yeah, incapable state or public sector also, I understand that a lot of the, the debt was financed uh, by China. Is that true through the Road and Belt Initiative? Yes. I mean, uh, when it comes to the bilateral debt, over half of it comes from uh, China. So the issue was also this started from uh, the mid-2000s. When you see earlier how, why Sri Lanka never had a sort of a deep debt issue was because the biggest lenders to us were the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank. And also Japan was a sort of lender in other ways. So here the grace periods were very long. The interest rates were very low. But after the mid-2000s, uh, Sri Lanka sort of shifted towards borrowing from China. And as many other countries do, I mean, uh, Chinese loans came at a higher borrowing cost. So this also played a part. But I would also say that, you know, Sri Lanka also started uh, borrowing money from the international capital markets, which were higher. So here again, the rates were higher because back again, we come to the same issue. Sri Lanka 
has been uh, consistently like if you look at the 75 year history only four times has the government achieved a primary budget surplus i'm not even talking about uh, so even a primary budget surplus was only achieved four times so very high fiscal deficits which have resulted in uh, sort of consistently high inflation over the years so this has also resulted in uh, higher borrowing costs so leading us faster to the debt so in the international capital markets people are only willing to lend money at uh, if they get a high interest rate so which was unsustainable in long term interesting and of course uh, looking at it uh, from a bit more positive angle of course uh, that means that there's a lot of upside potential you know <laughs> also when it comes to you know ease of business uh, that you mentioned uh, what do you see are there any good opportunities for international investors right now uh, to look uh, at sri lanka or is that still something that might come in the future so uh, first of all i think to state that sri lanka has a great potential like there's more to talk but three things i can say one is for example it's human capital so few people know this but even some of the largest stock exchanges in the world like the london stock exchange have their back end uh, technical work done in sri lanka so there is also a company that does ai simulations for the us military so that is also done here so there is a huge potential because of human capital i mean talented people and you see sri lankans going out and performing elsewhere but here if it can be utilized in a proper way that there is a huge potential because right now one of the issues is that in the education sector for a country of 22 million for a year we are only producing 5000 stem graduates so focus on more on educational reforms these are essentially in that aspect so the second thing would be tourism because sri lanka was rated by lonely planet as the number one tourist destination in the world here again we have a country where you can go from the beach to the mountains all within a few hours time so there is a huge potential when it comes to tourism and uh, lastly and most importantly i would say the strategic location so we are located right next to india which by 2035 is going to be a 10 trillion dollar economy according to a think tank and it's uh, set to and it is growing at around 7% a year with a huge middle class rising up so there is a potential market for that and the other sort of unique thing that uh, sri lanka has is that when it comes to countries in south asia most of the countries uh, some of them don't have uh, good relationships with others like india pakistan pakistan bangladesh bangladesh myanmar sri lanka is the only large economy in south asia which has very good relationships with all the other countries so it can act as sort of a hub if utilized in the proper way like a singapore in asean so and on top of this like uh, we are also close to the middle east the gulf countries and on this side asean and we have very good relationships with china which hopefully will find sign a fta soon with so an fta we have an fta with pakistan and india and soon with china oh. so many chinese firms or indian firms can use sri lanka as a base to you know capitalize on the other <laughs> So these are some of the advantages <laughs> Sri Lanka has. Okay, that is interesting. So that's a good point uh, maybe to our listeners who may be looking at uh, India as we spoke uh, earlier but uh, maybe for a lot of the uh, things uh, Sri Lanka is also a good uh, alternative and uh, not very far from uh, major markets and as you said with good political connections uh, to several sides. Executive briefing what you should read now. 
And there we ask our interview guests to make a couple of recommendations on interesting books or journal articles, whatever it may be, that our listeners could read if they want to know more about the topics that we've been discussing here. So what would your suggestions be for our executive briefing? There are a couple of books that I would recommend, one on the economic side and one more on uh, the corporate side. The first one is a book by Dr. Montek Singh Aluwalia. So he has uh, actually written a book about his period in the government. And uh, in it, there is a lot of lessons of transforming a, such a huge country from being a country that f was so close to the rest of the world into transforming it into such a powerful, fast-growing nation. So here he goes into details about the benefits of removing the license raj, which was sort of like uh, the import substitution policies used by the previous uh, governments before the year 1991. And it also talks in detail about uh, how the former prime minister back then when he was a finance minister, uh, Dr. Manmohan Singh, how he sort of, when India was at the brink in 1991 with very low forex, how he transformed the country, changed its policies, went through so much. And today we see India, you know, roaring to success. So that would be a very, very important book. And also, I, as I met Dr. Montek Singh, I would recommend that, uh, you know, his, the way it's written, it's more like a story and quite interesting to read. So I would strongly recommend reading that book to understand more on the economic side of India. When it comes to the corporate side, uh, another book that I have read is uh, What It Takes by Steve Schwartzman, so, who is the CEO of Blackstone. So here, why I suggest this is because there are many lessons uh, that book has. So right now he is the uh, biggest name in private equity, but how he started. So just working at uh, Lehman Brothers and then the failures it takes, the mistakes make, how he starts, goes to a presentation. For example, he writes that he has to do a merger and acquisition presentation at six o'clock in the morning and he has no idea even what that means. So, so calling up one of his seniors at 6 a.m. in the morning, taking a few points, going in, presenting. So, so these are things, you know, I feel like people, a lot of people who can perform good, students, corporate leaders, are always scared. Like Richard Branson says, whenever you get an opportunity, say yes, go and do it. So what I found interesting was that for a leader, I mean, even if you don't know something, if you really put in the effort, even within a few hours, you can do a presentation to a board. So that was confidence. And also the sort of struggles you go through to become somebody big. Like in that book, he writes how he and a former uh, secretary of one of the governments, a very senior figure, had to go to MIT and wait for three hours. And on a Friday at 5 p.m. And then the person says that, you know, these people did not even turn up to office today. So these are lessons I feel like uh, would be very good for corporate leaders, students watching this. So these two books I would strongly recommend. Perfect. Thank you very much, Talal. That sounds very interesting. And uh, for the listeners, we'll make sure that the links will be in the show notes. So if you haven't been able to note down the titles, you will find them in the show notes and you can access them there. I would like to touch on a bit of different topic because I know that you've also written about this you're interested in, and that is the topic of sustainability. 
And we've had uh, a guest on this podcast recently where we talked about climate change, uh, also in the context of emerging markets, the differences between the approach taken by developed countries and those by, by emerging or developing countries. And I would like to talk a little bit about uh, this topic with you to get your perspective. When we talk about emerging markets, developing countries, what do you think is more important, the threats that come out of climate change and being affected by climate change or the opportunities that may also arise from the necessary transformation of the economies? Right. I just weigh in both of them. But I feel like, in my opinion, the opportunities are greater. But uh, let me just uh, start off with some of the opportunities because you see, for us to meet the 2030 climate goals, there has to be investments of at least a trillion dollars a year. So there's a huge opportunity for developing emerging markets to tap onto these. So that is a huge advantage, especially when you are looking at uh, a stage where, according to the UN, 54 nations are under debt stress. So this will be an enormous influx of money coming into their economies. So, so that's one thing. The second thing is uh, what I see even with the example of Sri Lanka or other emerging countries, a huge portion of their forex, the foreign exchange, goes towards importing energy needs like oil. And not only that, also whatever deal uh, Russia or Saudi Arabia or the OPEC oil cartel does, it results in fluctuating oil prices, which immediately causes a change of government in some developing country. So sustainability meeting their net zero targets or moving towards it also results in developing renewable energy. And as we know, whether it's wind, whether it's solar, uh, hydropower, this all is within, most of the time, it's within the country's uh, borders. So that means energy self-sufficiency. So they are not going to be spending valuable foreign exchange towards importing oil. And at the same time, they are safe against fluctuating energy prices around the world. So this is another massive advantage. And the third thing is also, as you know, the US Security Exchange Commission laws, the EU taxonomy laws. So these are going to like restrict imports coming into the EU that are not compliant with the standards. So if uh, developing markets can focus on climate goals, shift their policies and make their companies do this. So this is a huge potential to tap into these markets, especially the lucrative EU and US uh, markets, which are very good for exports. And still, like even if you take Sri Lanka, the largest export markets are the US and EU. So these are some of the advantages. But there are also downsides, you know. As I mentioned, 54 countries around the world are experiencing uh, debt stress. So are uh, finding it unable to pay. Like, for example, Sri Lanka has defaulted. Pakistan, Egypt, they are almost coming close to defaulting. Hopefully, they're rescued by the IMF. But uh, this shows that, uh, you know, it's quite difficult when there's so little fiscal space for them to spend on climate uh, adaptation. So here again, uh, also it's, to be fair, it's what some of the developing countries say are true. Historically, if you see the emissions, the developed countries like the U.S., and the European countries have emitted far more. And they have had periods of economic growth where they grew and became developed countries when they did not have to meet any climate goals or targets. So they were given a free run. So it's, it's also about uh, time, like as they committed in COP26, for them to help out most of these debt countries. Because in the end, if the developing world keeps emitting and are unable to meet targets, it's going to affect the whole world. So 
everybody is on one boat so the resources are with the developed world so i feel that you know for the betterment of everybody including the developed world it's time for them to assist uh, financially and technically yes i think we we all agree uh, the devil lies in the details but of course um, we know all all these arguments also the the historic obligation of the developed nations to help those uh, countries that come afterwards and and don't have the luxury of unfettered uh, pollution basically to help them industrialize and develop but i'm glad to hear that overall you are judging the opportunities to overweigh the uh, the threats which i believe is also a a very positive and very powerful message for those countries that are facing these these difficulties a bold prediction the world in 10 years And there we ask our guests to make a prediction of how the world will look like in 10 years in the uh, topics that we've been discussing. I know this is difficult and we will not hold you responsible. We'll not come back in 10 years and uh, look at it. Yes. But we still would like you to give your, your best guess at how things will develop and how the world will look like in 10 years. So that's a, a difficult thing to predict because... If you went back to 2010 and asked what, I'm sure nobody would have guessed what's happening right now. So one thing would be I see a larger role for AI playing here. I mean, I feel like uh, a lot of people look at new instruments like ChatGPT and others as something that's going to take away jobs. But I agree that they are going to take away very jobs that have repetitive functions. But at the same time, it's going to increase production and efficiency. Like I've written a paper for the IMF on uh, how innovation helps economic growth. So I feel that it's going to increase the overall productivity of our economy, though it might result in a few job losses. But at the same time, it's also up to the governments to, you know, work on upskilling people so that they can adapt to the situation. The second thing is I feel that uh, over time, with such a large drive, the world is going to look much greener. So... Many countries, even uh, India, China, they are all going fast towards uh, net zero uh, targets. What I feel is that it may look like a bit unachievable right now, but my thing is once the momentum starts, like for example, solar is already much cheaper than fossil fuels, and if the prices come down, it's only a matter of time before everybody shifts. Like uh, two things to, that are preventing EVs, uh, electric vehicles, uh, you know, the how long it can take to charge a car and also the charging infrastructure batteries everything so once that is done it will be a very quick move by everybody in my opinion to evs so i feel like uh, it's going to be a much greener world and uh, the third thing would be i see a, a world where india would be playing a much uh, stronger role because in the next 10 years i think indian economy would be around 10 trillion dollars and uh, with most of the services and even segments of uh, manufacturing moving there have a much more uh, powerful role to play in the region as well as on the global front so these are three of the things that in my opinion would be a prediction for the next 10 years but i don't think uh, everything would be true but anyway my guess thank you very much for this outlook which is uh, largely positive and i think that's also a, an important message from this podcast episode we've already come to the end so this was another episode of the Business Diplomacy podcast. Thank you very much, Talal, for being here with us. Thank you. 
This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, please make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.